Um, let's pray once more. Father, we do, um, we just have, as we just sang, um, goodness gracious, how much, in, in times like these, how much do we have to be thankful for? You command us to rejoice in you always, but the command aligns perfectly with the truth. Um, so we praise you again right now. Forgive us for our thanklessness. And now lead us into a greater understanding of the truth. Let the truth dwell richly within us. Give us the faith of people like Gabriel. Give us a childlike faith that has been so clearly exemplified before us just now. Um, give us this kind of faith and let that faith um, run out of us in love. Faith working through love. So um, please do this now. Please make my words clear so that your word would be clear and uh, build up your church, please, I ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's been said that blind optimism for a Christian is naive. It is blind foolishness. And these days, it, it is getting harder and harder to be naive. You know, that temptation is lessening. Um, but on the other hand, to be pessimistic is atheistic. Blind unbelief, for which it is getting easier and easier to fall into. But Paul would have nothing of either. He is neither a naive Pollyanna, nor has he been blackpilled. That is, he's become so darkened by his trials and tribulations that he feels nothing but a fatalistic pessimism. That's because Paul is living by faith. By faith. And by his own example, he calls the Corinthian church and us to do the same in the passage before us today. To walk by faith in God and therefore in grateful confidence. So today we look at the second part of the introduction to 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, verses 4 through 9. And in these verses, we see the source of Paul's confidence, the, the object of his faith, the place where his faith rested that produced this confidence. And as we do, we too will gain the courage to consider where we perhaps have misplaced our faith and, and fallen into pessimism. And then we'll apply it to three different spheres of our lives. Well, three and a half. So first, let's, let's look to the passage itself. I'm going to walk through the passage, but, but here is a summary. Paul feels constant gratitude for the Corinthians because of the grace God gave them in Jesus, which enriched them, past tense, enriched them for everything they need to endure faithfully until Christ's return. Paul feels constant gratitude for the Corinthians because of the grace God gave them in Jesus, which enriched them for everything they need to endure faithfully until Christ's return. So Paul begins in verse 4 by saying that when he thinks about them, he feels a, a joyful gratitude. A joyful gratitude, which as we said last week, is remarkable. Just remarkable considering what a mixed up church this was. 1 Corinthians 5.1, this church was tolerating sins that even the pagans of Corinth would not tolerate. Even though Corinth, by this time, you know, Corinth in, in all ancient literature had become a, a, a byword for debauchery and depravity. To be Corinthian meant to be debaucherous, and yet they were tolerating sins that even the, the pagan Corinthians wouldn't even tolerate. 
1 Corinthians 11.21, some of them were showing up for communion feasts with the same attitude they had before when they went to orgies at the pagan temple. They were devouring each other, chapter 3, suing each other in the pagan courts, chapter 6. Their worship services, chapter 14, were so disorganized by pride and one-upping each other that when outsiders came in, they were like, I don't even know what's going on here. This is, this is crazy. And as we will see today, the Spirit had dumped out buckets of gifts on them, chapter 12, but they were only spending those gifts on themselves, for themselves. They loved some me. And lastly, they had shown great disregard to Paul, the man who had given them their spiritual birth, their spiritual father in the faith. And yet Paul says, despite all that, I feel gratitude every time I think of you. (laughs) Something. So how can Paul feel this way? How can Paul not fall into understandable pessimism? You think about that list. It would be very understandable for Paul, for Paul to feel pessimism, and yet, how can he feel this way without possessing self-deceiving naivete? How was Paul not just blowing sunshine at himself? Um, it is only because he is thinking, verse 4, of the grace God gave to them in Christ Jesus. He is optimistic about them because of what God has put into them. When, whenever anyone comes to Christ, it is, it is nothing less than, than bringing our whole selves to the altar, and we, we lay ourselves on the, on the altar, and we die. We are burned up. We're consumed by His Spirit. It is, a, it is a sacrifice that is lifted up into heaven. But whatever Jesus takes possession of, because He has risen from the dead, He raises from the dead. He makes new. And more than that, just as, just as Jesus was different after his resurrection, he was glorified, he was new, so all whom Jesus raises from the dead, he makes new, he transforms, he gives us gifts that we did not possess before. That is grace. The word grace at its fundamental definition simply means a gift, an undeserved gift. He takes us from the world, then he raises us up, and he gifts us with grace, and then by that gift of grace to us, he then makes us gifts to the world. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 4, verses 7 and 8. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Those gifts to men are the captives to whom Jesus brings to himself, and then gives gifts to and makes them gifts to the world. To the Corinthians, verse 5, he especially gave the gifts of all speech and all knowledge, which is no coincidence since these are the very things that the Corinthian culture really, really prized. Good speakers with a lot of pithy quotes, you know, just like modern America. And they should remember, they should remember that this came with some kind of confirmation, verse 6, that these gifts really came from the risen Lord Jesus. We, we don't know what this confirmation was. Maybe it was miraculous. Maybe it was just the people like Sosophus that we heard about, Sosthenes, excuse me, that we heard about last week, who sacrificed everything for the Lord. Whatever it was, they knew. They knew what these confirmations were, that these gifts came from Jesus. But regardless, verse 7 is the kicker. Verse 7 is the kicker. Paul is saying here, you got you to take this in. They do not lack any gift in their congregation spread amongst 
every person, not in exactly the same way, different gifts to different people, but as a whole, their congregation does not lack any gift that they will need to endure to the end. They lack no gift. They were, as we will see later, very impressed with outside speakers who were much more eloquent than Paul, who came with dazzling knowledge and bright teeth and you know, really awesome speakers that charged a lot of money. And Paul says, you don't need any of them. You don't need any of them. You don't need to look outside the congregation. You need only have faith in what God has already planted within you. And then mine it by faith. Faith in God, verse 8, that He will sustain you to the end. He will sustain you. Not the new tactic of that dazzlingly successful preacher down the street with the pearly whites that sells all the books. No, God will be your sustainer. Your faith is in, as George prayed earlier, your faith is in God, and He will, He will do it. Because only God can sustain you so that you stand guiltless at the end on that day when Jesus returns. The word guiltless here is an Old Testament concept that means blameless. Blameless, which in the Old Testament um, concept does not mean without sin. What it means is um, living without high-handed rebellion, without high-handed rebellion. So to put it positively, it implies a heart that is pointed towards God, not not in perfection, but in continual repentance. In a, in a trajectory of growth towards God. Only God can do this in this fallen world. And verse 9, He will do this. He will do this. Why? Because, must think about this visually, when they were saved, they were, they were welcomed into a partnership, into a union, a fellowship with Jesus. They were placed in Jesus. In Jesus. And as Jesus has promised, no one will snatch them out of my hand. John 10. All that come to me, no one will snatch them out of my hand. God will do it. He promises to do it. So that's the passage. That's that's where Paul's grateful, gracious, grounded optimism towards these crazy, insane, upside-down, mixed-up people comes from. Not from a naive Pollyanna philosophy, but from the facts of faith, of our faith. Paul is confident in the Corinthians with all their failings and insanities because he knows what's been implanted in them, the grace of God. Paul is confident about God in them because Jesus is risen. The only, as Paul will say later, there is no reason for us to have confidence in any of this. Christianity is nuts, except for one fact, that Jesus is risen from the dead. That's, that's why Paul has all of his confidence. Thus, he sees them with the eyes of faith. To put it another way, Paul sees them as they truly are, i.e., as they will be. Who they are today is not them. Because Jesus is risen from the dead. Because the the grace of God has been implanted in them. Who they are today is not who they are. 
So, so Paul can see a future vision of them, a, a vision of the future version of them that, that by God's grace will come to pass, and that's why he's so grateful for them. He's grateful for who they are, i.e. who they will be. Not by their power, not because they're awesome, but by the working of God in them. As he will say later in 2 Corinthians uh, 5, verse 16, therefore he regards no one any longer according to the flesh, but according to faith. Faith in God, faith in the grace of God working in them. But that does not mean that he does nothing. I mean, that, that future self will come, but it will only come by grace working, which is why Paul writes the letter. Yeah, that's why Paul's right. This letter is nothing more, nothing less than the Spirit guiding him along, but, but it is Paul, Paul's faith working itself out in love. Love, love is this. Love is affection for another person that is, that is uh, governed by the truth of the Word, and it is dispensed by faith. Love is affection for another person that is, that is governed by the truth of the word and then is given, it is, it is worked out by faith. That's all Paul is doing here as he writes this letter, carried along by the Spirit. He has affection for the Corinthians, which he pairs together with the truth of the word, and then he acts in faith that, that the, grace, the grace in the truth of the word will work, will bring about a new reality, will bring about that vision, and thus he writes the letter. Thus he acts. Change does not come magically. Change comes, change will come for the Corinthians by them taking the words of this letter, and you and I, taking the words of this letter, believing it, humbling themselves, ourselves under it, repenting where we need to, believing it, humbling ourselves under it, and then repenting where we need to from the old self to that new self, to who they actually are, to who you actually are. As we saw last week, as, as Paul says in Ephesians, because you are already raised from the dead and seated with Christ in the heavenly places, you are simply growing into who you already are leaving behind the body of death, as Paul talks about in Romans 7. Change does not come naturally, but by faith, by humbling ourselves, submitting ourselves under the word, believing it, and repenting to that new self. So they don't need more than that, Paul is saying. You don't need more than that. They only need to take hold of what's already been given to them because God's grace will be sufficient. He will sustain them to the end. They're to believe that and then act. So let's consider, as we did briefly last week, but a, a bit more than the, the tone of this letter. The tone of this letter. Yes, there is in this letter correction and chastisement, and some of it will be very strident. By the end of the letter, Paul's going to tell them, act like men. Act <laughs> And he says that because they're not acting like men. <laughs> That's, <laughs> um, but yes, so, so there is correction and there is chastisement, but the tone, the tone is the exact opposite of pessimism. Paul is operating in this letter with grateful, joyful confidence. 
He is optimistic without being naive. If Paul were ruled by pessimism, no letter would ever have been written, or it would not have been worth putting in the Bible. Um, now, as the men heard at the, the men's bonfire last week, pessimism, pessimism is understandable in this fallen world. Just if you have eyes in your head, there's a lot of reason for pessimism. And more than that, um, pessimism keeps you alive. You know, if you're on a hike and you see a round twirly thing in the bushes and it's rattling, you hear a rattling sound, you know, naive optimism will get you killed, <laughs> get you bit and killed. It's, it's, it's healthy pessimism says, I wouldn't touch that, and that keeps you alive. Um, but so much of our pessimism is not wise. It is not wisdom applied correctly. It is an earthy assessment of things that is decoupled from God, particularly from the promises of God. And therefore, it is just atheism with shoe leather. Put it again. Pessimism decoupled from the promises of God is just atheism with a Christian headdress. And then this atheistic pessimism leaves two very cruddy, very dismal results. First, it leaves us depressed and despairing. Um, and... Uh, we, you know, we, we lose hope. We lose hope for ourselves, for our families, for our church, for our culture. And this leads to the second cruddy, dismal result. We become inert. We become inert. We stop taking the constructive, courageous action that if we would take it, God just might bless and turn into the miracle that we were sad for not having all along. Um. And the atmosphere that this, this kind of pessimism creates, it's just, it's just ugly and unattractive. You know, it's, it's, it's judgy, and it's fearful, and it's resentful, and it's divisive. It's the Corinthian church. It's like, you know, you, imagine inviting someone to a church like this. You know, hey, come to my church where no one has any hope, and nobody does anything except the spiritual equivalent of moving the deck chairs on the Titanic. Doesn't that sound nice? Come to my church. But we have cool bumper stickers. So, so but, but again, this is a horse that you can fall on, off, off the horse on two sides. Um, Paul does not call them or us to a naive power of positive thinking, name it and claim it, you know, send your words out into the air and the, the good will come back to you kind of philosophy. Not at all. It's not a philosophy at all. Um, there... What's happening here is Paul is, is walking by faith on an assortment of facts. We are to believe these facts and then act on them with faith. Jesus died and paid for our sins. You are forgiven. It is finished, he said, from the cross. And he has risen from the dead. The power of the ages in his hand. And he raises us up with him. And whatever, whatever comes to Jesus, whatever comes to Jesus gets burned up on the altar and it, and it gets raised with him and then it gets transformed. Whatever comes to Jesus, this is what he does. He raises it. He transforms it. He gifts it. God has given us all the gifts that we need by his power for our mutual aid and endurance until the end. All of us. 
And the central gift of His grace is in His Word, which contains His promises. And by the power of these gifts, these graces, His promises, He, he promises to sustain us until the very end. By the same power, by the same power that He lives in new resurrection life. We're to believe this. And, and, and by that belief, then, there we are to live with a, with a confident vision of the future and then act towards that vision of the future. Avoiding atheistic pessimism, but also avoiding naive, um, baseless optimism. We're to walk by faith. <laughs> okay, so, so let's consider how this looks, what, what this looks like in as I said, three and a half spheres of life. Let's first consider this in the realm of parenting. Parenting. This paragraph that we are studying here, verses four through nine, it, it is actually a mini course on parenting. Paul, the spiritual father, parenting his spiritual children. And um, I'm a parent, I'll say from my own experience, but I know you too. It is so easy to parent by fear and pessimism. Oh, goodness, how easy is it? It's so easy to, to only see the child as they are today and then be gripped and ruled and governed by fear and pessimism. But, but parenting by faith believes the promises of God, believes the promises of God that whatever comes to Jesus, he raises up and he richly enriches with gifts. And believing those promises then what, what happens then in the mind of the parent who actually believes these promises, what develops is, is a vision of the 25-year-old version of this child, and then you, you think about that vision, and while the kid is still who they are today, a gratitude develops in you towards the child. And then with this, with this new vision, then the whole atmosphere around the child changes. Now the adults are no longer suspicious and down on the child. I don't know if you're a Christian yet. Not suspicious, not down on them. We are optimistic and joyful because of this vision, this future vision. Faith believes what it cannot see. But we see, we, we see the 25-year-old version of this child, and we have gratitude and happiness about that. And then faith acts because we know that that vision that, that vision will not just happen by itself. And so the parent does what Paul does with his letter, and he, he gives grace and peace to the child in an optimistic, confident expectation of that vision coming true. This is what it means to walk by faith, to, to raise them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, as Ephesians 6, 4 says. And when, when we operate this way, then no longer does fear reign in parenting. You still feel fear. <laughs> Goodness, of course you do. Um, but it just doesn't reign. It doesn't govern you anymore. Now it's faith. And now our aims get bigger. Now, when you operate with this vision for your child, then, then your aims flip over, to, to quote uh, something Toby Sumter recently said. We, you, you change, and now you're the one, and, and instead of being the parent that's fearful about all the other kids infecting your kid, now your, your child is the one that other parents are fearful of your child infecting those kids with, with their joyful, infectious faith. Um, 
This, this faith-filled vision is definitely hope in what we cannot see, um, especially with boys. You know, girls are generally more conservative. They sit in their desks and they give the impression of spiritual compliance, you know. Meanwhile, the boys are hanging from the ceiling and, you know, you give them a worksheet about John the Baptist and they draw attack helicopters on it or whatever, you know, and you're wondering what is going on here. Um, but faith, brothers and sisters, faith says Gabe Deemers will be a strong and courageous man in his generation. Faith sees this, the kind of man that a community can be built around on his shoulders. Gabe, running around, Gabe. Faith looks forward and sees that Jacob Sherline will be that singular man with the cool head to literally land the plane safely when the second engine goes out, saving the 400 souls on board. Faith says, Jensen Anderson, I, I can see it, will stand in the city gates before magistrates and judges and kings, courageously proclaiming Christ and him crucified. Faith says Cash Kerr will raise up a business and a family, a family that will love the Lord and, and, and a community can be built around, a family that will hold closely to Christ. Faith said Gabriel Molin will figure out how millions of flying cars in the future will travel safely in the skies. Millions of people will, will, will rely for their safety on his wisdom, his insight. I, I could go on saying the same thing for the girls or the older teens. Faith sees this vision and then is governed by the word then. It, it sees that vision and it feels an optimism, not in the child itself, but in the grace given to the child, in the, in the, the power, resurrection power of the one who gives the grace. As we just sang, not, not, yet not I and yet not these kids, but Christ in them. And so you see the vision, and then you, you, you then act governed by the word in love, governed by your affection then is governed by the word. You then feed that child the grace and the peace that they will need to then grow into that vision. Faith turns into constructive action. Faith becomes the miracle, yet not because of us, not because of awesome parenting, not by new tactics, but by the simple wisdom that God is God, and that he raises from the dead and transforms whatever comes to him. Okay, so, parenting. Uh, but the same principle, the same principle must govern our relationships with each other in this church. We church by faith, verb, church. Faith views people, Faith views people by their trajectory towards God, not the point that they are at right now on that trajectory. If, if the other person's nose is pointed towards God, faith, faith knows where they are at. Faith is not, a, again, a blind Pollyanna. Faith knows that on a trajectory towards God that they are here, but, but faith sees that, oh wait, but their nose is pointed here. And, and whatever comes to Jesus, Jesus raises from the dead, Jesus will transform. So now I have, a, I, I have an optimism, I, I can see where this grace is taking you. I see the vision of the future you. I, I see you, as, as, as C.S. Lewis said, if, if you could see the other person to your left or to your right, what they will be like on the day that they're glorified right now, 
you would be tempted right now to bow down and, and worship them for the glory that they will be robed in. But, but even before that day, I, I can see the transforming work of God in your life. And so, yes, you are here. You, are, you, you seem so far from God. You seem like you have so much to learn, so, so much to repent of, and yet I can see it. I can see it, brother. I can see it, sister. And I feel, I'm filled with gratitude towards you because of God in you, because of God's grace in you and what it will do. Oh, that changes the whole atmosphere. It's whole atmosphere. Now, to be clear, faith does not ignore where people are at the moment. Love is affection governed by the word. Faith does not ignore sin. It is not naive. After all, Paul will later in this letter tell the Corinthians to purge an unrepentant man and woman from their midst. <laughs> so, that's true. But Paul will even do this in tear-filled hope that even that action will lead to that man and woman's redemption, hope, and confidence. Faith in the powerful grace of God is what keeps us as a church from a judgy pessimism with each other. You know, and, and when that takes hold of you, then you become the sort of person that leaves church after church because you're always finding something wrong. Or, but it also keeps you from a silly Pollyannaism where we ignore sin and just happy, happy, joy, joy. Instead, it keeps us courageously centered on the word, confidently moving forward, sometimes in constructive conflict with each other, but always towards a vision of that new and renewed future for the other person and for the whole church. Um, now, here's the, the three and a half part. Can this be applied to your marriage? Of course it can. <laughs> of course it can. Um, would your spouse say that you major on who they are now with a judgy pessimism? Or would your spouse say that he or she sees me as grace is making me to be, and they relate to me with a, with a grateful confidence towards me, not because of me, but because of God in me? What would your spouse say about you? No, no hands raised, but um, it is worth contemplating. It's worth contemplating. Well, lastly, lastly, it's, it's this attitude that must then govern us as we consider our country, or excuse me, our county, our county, our country, and our culture. And I, and I put it in that order because I'm convinced that um, God would have us pay most attention to our county, but there's the country too. Um, so for instance, let's take the upcoming election cycle, and I want to say this with no regard to the candidates themselves. No regard to them. But I, I hear you. I listen to you. Um, and I know that many of you have no hope for a fair and honest presidential election coming up. Because the regime is already today perp-walking its opponents and interfering, interfering with the said election. <laughs> you are filled with, and I, I'm going to say this, the problem there is that it's not the election. The problem is that you are filled in this, as you think about it, with atheistic pessimism. I think that's true. And yet, and yet, this country was never founded on, say, George Washington's greatness. This country was the product of faith in the promises of God. 
mostly Puritans fleeing persecution and literally, literally betting their lives that their God would still be God and would sustain them in that wild land across the ocean. And guess what? He did. He did. And God was faithful to them. So to put this another way, um, is it, is it of, of some importance who is in the Oval Office? Of course it is. That's why we have elections. It's, yes. Um, but what will save America? What will save America? The only thing that will save America is having the resurrected God-man reign over our land. Not having your guy in the Oval Office. Pessimism will lead us to throw up our hands and say that there is no hope for this country to exit from its death spiral. If that is you, perhaps the first bit of repentance you need to make is just <laughs> to do this. Because faith, faith says whatever comes to Jesus, he raises it from the dead, be it a person, a county, or even countries. The very existence of our country is evidence of that. Faith walks with a vision of an America more Christian than it ever was before. Do you know that that actually can happen? That is one of the options right now. <laughs> At least it is, again, only, only, I can only say that because Jesus is risen from the dead. Um. Should we care about things that are legal or Ill? Yes, 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 yes. But to make them things of ultimate importance is foolish and only leads us into unconstructive pessimism. The only thing that will renew this country is if God's people come again to a vision of a renewed Christian nation, a new renewed Christian nation that has risen from the dead, that comes back to Jesus and lays itself on the altar and dies and is burned up and that is made new in Jesus under the reign of King Jesus. It's a vision that then would fire love, that would fire the most constructive action, affection for one's country, Affection for one's country, we might call that patriotism, but patriotism that is governed by this. Patriotism that's governed by this. And then acts, then acts by faith. What does that look like? That looks like preaching the gospel hot and every which way. Because that is the only thing that will raise this country from the dead. Courageously and with affection for one's country, preaching the gospel to our county. Your king is Jesus. Believe and repent. That is what we need. That is what we need. Vote for whoever you want, want to vote for. I don't care. Seriously, vote, truly, vote for whoever you want to vote for. Um, what we need is King Jesus to reign over us because that is the only way that anyone or anything is raised from the dead and transformed. Christ and him crucified and risen and now ascending and soon to return. Soon to return. So um, we're, we're going to go to, um, we're going to go to communion in just a moment. But as we go to communion today, I would like you to view communion as 
an image, a, a, a physical picture of the, the guarantee of God's promises. How do I know that God's promises will come true? How can I gain the confidence to even take a step believing in what you're saying, Jed, that, that the United States could, could not, exit, ex, not only exit from its death spiral, but even to become more Christian than it ever has been? Okay, he, he, God says, here's the proof of my promises. All my promises are yes in Jesus. So that's, I, want, I want you to think about communion this way today, but, but, but let me pray first. Father, I pray now that you would grant us repentance from all of our atheistic pessimism, from all the ways that we've believed uh, so many things. We've believed, we've believed the words or the actions or the expressions of our children and we've taken them at face value and we've become pessimistic. Or, or we've, we've looked at our spouse, our, our weird, sinful spouse, and we've said, there's no hope. It's a bad trajectory. Or where we've, we've looked at someone in the church and said, this person's never going to change. And we've, we've become pessimistic or judgy and um, or where we've looked at our culture and we've listened to the news and we've taken those words as the gospel truth that there is no hope. We've decoupled our thoughts of our county and our culture from you. Grant us repentance. Grant us to actually walk by faith in your promises. Start with me. Grant re me repentance from my pessimism, my atheistic pessimism. But do that in all of us, please. Do that in all of us because you are risen from the dead. Praise your name. You raise with you whatever comes to you. You're a wondrous king. A wondrous king. I pray this in your name. Amen. Well, if the men could come forward to... Um, and if you... Brothers, could go ahead and begin distributing the elements, please, as I make a few introductory comments. Um, yeah, go right ahead. Thank you. Um, here at Grace, we practice open communion, which means that you don't need to be um, a member here or to be catechized in our church to take communion. You only need to be a Christian who is trusted in Christ and who seeks to live with Him as your Lord. Thank you. Um, as for children taking communion, we leave that up to parents. My own general um, tone is to err on the side of taking communion um, for reasons that I've laid out in a, in a pamphlet out there, but I'm happy to talk with you about that, parents. Um, but what we're doing here in communion is three parts. One, it is a solemn, inward-looking remembrance of our sins. It's a, it's a remembrance of what put Christ on the cross, our sin and rebellion. It's a remembrance of, therefore, the, the awfulness of the cross, what it took for those sins to be forgiven. But then there is free joy, free joy of what was accomplished on the cross, that it is finished, that we are free, free. And then lastly, it is a recommissioning to go out again, recommitted to the King's Commission, to go out preaching, literally preaching the good news of the gospel. Now, one, one thing that I should clarify, um, 
for those of you who are a bit more, um, I, don't, I don't know what the word is. Um, I used to know what the word is. Um, you, you struggle with sin. You struggle with sin and you, a particular sin, you hate it, you struggle with it, you fail, and you're right now in this, this up and down season with sin. Um, and you might be tempted to uh, let the plate pass you by and not take communion because your struggle has been bad lately. Then there's the other person who comes to communion and who is proud proud of their outward expression of their faith, but you have sins that you have no intention of repenting of. You have no desire to repent of it. In fact, you have plans to keep doing it. <laughs> uh, my, my strong exhortation to, to each one of you is this. To you who are struggling with sin, oh my goodness, take communion. Christ died for sinners. <laughs> do, do you qualify? If you're a sinner, then you qualify. <laughs> you qualify to take communion. Take communion and rejoice that your sins are paid for, even those ones that you struggle and fail against right now. But to you who have no intention of repenting of certain sins, um, I, I implore you, let the elements pass you by. Do not join in. Do not join in because you do not want to place yourself under the awful judgment of God. So, um, let me now lead us through these three steps of inward, somber remembrance of joy and of recommissioning. Um, first, let me pray for the bread. Lord Jesus, this bread represents your body come to earth for us and then broken for us. The bread that I hold in my hand can barely be called bread and it is so small. And yet your gift, your gift was infinite, infinite. That the, the infinite God would come to earth and take on flesh and walk in my shoes and die for me. My goodness, my goodness, my goodness, what it took for you to pay the price for my sins, your body nailed to a cross, slowly suffocating for me. Praise your name. We remember you now. We remember you now, hating our sin loving you for taking it all upon yourself. Praise your name. Amen. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat together. Let me pray for the cup. King Jesus, you reigned from a bloody, gory Roman cross 
You reigned by giving up your life, by humbling yourself to the point of death, even death on a cross, by handing over your life so that we could have life. It is finished. And we may now join you in your resurrection life. Oh, we are free. <laughs> we are free. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Praise your name. Praise your name for how good you are, for how you have done all things well. Praise your name that that no one who has come to you can ever escape your grasp. Thank you. Thank you for the confidence that we can have, not in ourselves, not in what we do, but what you have done and in your continuing reign over our lives. Thank you. Praise your name. Amen. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink it together. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So let's pray once more. Our God and our Father, we have now eaten this rich feast that is communion with you. We say thank you. But we also know that this rich feast was not given to us just to make us spiritually fatter, but to enrich us that we may go out and share the wealth that we have been given in you. Make us spirit-filled preachers of the good news. Make us spirit-filled proclaimers of the best news that you are king and life is found in you. Make us proclaimers and bring in your people here in this county, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Receive the benediction. Christian, uh, Jesus promises you, for the sake of his own glory, to never leave you nor forsake you. Let the promise that Lucy reminded us of at the beginning of this, to reign on you, to, to rest on you, and to govern you. So go believing that promise, living courageously towards your world, sharing the gospel, betting your life on that promise. Because he will do it. He will do it. Amen.